Could you open up to the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 4? And so can I just worry about you? That's why I ask. That's why I ask you to. And you're getting a lot of grace, so I really worry more. So, Actually, if you can open up to Hosea 4. As you know, this month we are taking four weeks off to a degree to kind of focus on a topic, and the topic is called cold. And the idea of cold, as we said last week, is that there is a sign, as Jesus comes closer to taking us home, that the basically the feeling of the people on the earth, their hearts are going to grow colder and colder, harder and harder, more bitter, more callous. And if we are truly the sons and daughters of of God, if we're the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, this cannot be true of us. Our hearts actually need to grow warmer. We need to be, we need to be engaging people, truthfully. And so that's why our topic is called Thaw Out. We need to thaw out. Last week we talked about, we have the pillars here that kind of represents last week's message. We talked about one of the reasons we grow cold is because we erect our own idols. We grow away from God. We distance ourselves. The farther we get from the light, the colder we get. Pretty simple. This week, before we, I tell you what the topic is, it, it sort of is a corollary to what we talked about, but very specific how we grow cold when we distance from God. But to give you an illustration, I just want to start off with something that happened in my life to help us understand what I'm trying to communicate. My parents lived in Chicago, and my dad got a new job, and he moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm from. Got a really nice house. I mean, this house was nice. Had two, in the backyard, had two acres of beautiful wooded, wooded strong oak trees. Had a nice garage. The area was pretty, pretty neat. A lot of horse stables were in the area, and you could walk on trails and go look at the horses. It was really a neat area. It really was. My favorite part about the house is in the living room, they had a mini refrigerator. I never had a house with a mini fridge before. I loved it. That sold the house for me. I helped my mom and dad buy it. And I said, I like that. It had like a wet bar and a fridge. I could watch my show, stand up, and walk two paces and get a drink. It was amazing. Never had that before. So they bought the house because of the mini fridge. So... My mom stocked the mini fridge. She said, what kind of pop or what would you like in there? And I said, I don't care, whatever you want. So my mom put two beverages in the mini fridge. She put bottled water and Diet Coke. Now at the time, this is the late 80s, I was a young man. I thought Diet Coke was for women. I thought it was like the tab, you know, the tab daughter of tab. But I started reading the marketing for Diet Coke and listen to what it says. It fits me perfectly. Diet Coke is the most popular calorie-free soft drink in America. It's the original sparkling beverage for those who want great taste flavor. That's what I want. Without the calories, I wanted to get in shape. I didn't need the calories. I wanted to stay svelte and good looking. And it's a drink for those with great taste. I had great taste. That was the drink for me. So I started drinking Diet Coke. My mom loved it. She tried to sell me on it. I took one first sip, was bad. I did not like it, but the marketing, I bought into it. I loved it. And look how it looks in a mason jar. Take a look at that. That is good. So I started drinking it. I would get up in the morning before I went to work, take a drink of Diet Coke. I would usually pack a Diet Coke for my lunch. 
I'd get home for dinner or just get home and have a Diet Coke just to relax. And then for dinner, I'd have a Diet Coke. I might have a Diet Coke before I go to bed. I would drink probably three or four Diet Cokes a day. It's good. You get really used to it. It's really, really good. My sister Tammy, however, came over one day, and she looked at the refrigerator, and she said, Mom, do you know how terrible this stuff is for you? Just like that. My sister was on one of those health kicks. Do you ever have somebody in your family that gets on a health kick? Well, my sister got on a health kick, and she called Coke and Diet Coke Satan's drink. She said, Mom, that's Satan's drink. And my sister started going to conservative church, and my mom said, I thought alcohol was Satan's drink. And she said, not as bad as Coke and Diet Coke. And she started giving out all this paraphernalia. And I'll, I'll give you, she had one sheet, and it, was some, it went something like this. And I'll read this to you. Six reasons to avoid drinking diet soda. Number one, it can cause harm to your heart. According to the research from some institute in Sweden, men who drank two or more servings of Diet Coke had 23% higher risk of developing heart failure. Huh. Number two, it can cause kidney problems. The study has been done where over 3,000 women found a link between diet soda and kidney problems. Researchers found that women who drank two or more diet sodas a day had as much as 30% decrease in kidney function. One doctor said 30% is considered very significant, I would say. Number three, third reason. Diet Coke can increase your risk of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Several studies have linked diet drinks to increase risk of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Metabolic syndrome is a group of risk factors that raises your risk for heart disease and other health problems. Another study of about 10,000 adults in the University of Minnesota found that one soda drink a day led to a 34% increased risk of metabolic syndrome. Additionally, listen to this. Another study found 36% greater risk of metabolic syndrome related to drinking diet soda and 67% greater risk of type 2 diabetes compared with people who didn't drink soda, specifically diet soda, at all. Fourth reason why soda is bad. It leads to increased weight circumference. So that is a lie that, you know, you're going to lose weight. They say it's actually you have a 70% increase in your waist if you drink diet soda. That's interesting. Fifth reason, it alters your mood. There's a lot of studies that said that depression is a 30% higher risk of people that drink diet soda. In number six, as you can see up here, it has zero nutritional value. It's not good for you. One writer says when you drink diet soda, we're not, take, we're not taking in any calories, but you're also not swallowing anything that does your body good at all. Excessive soda drinking could leave you looking like a breaking bad extra, one person wrote. According to a case study published in General, General Dentistry, the research compared the mouths of a cocaine user, a methamphetamine uh, user, and a habitual diet soda drinker, found the same level of tooth erosion in each one of them. And if you look, there's these weird things on there called phenylalanine, and that's for spartamy. Why don't people give it up if it's that bad for you? Why, don't, why do people drink this sludge? You could ask it like that. Because it tastes 
felt so good. Look at that. Oh, that tastes so good. Some of you are wondering, well, then why don't you bring a pop up here, a Diet Coke, and pour it and then drink it? Wipe your mouth. Oh, that's so good. You want to know the reason why? If I take one sip of Diet Coke, I get a violent migraine instantly. After a year of drinking Diet Cokes like that, I started getting this strange, like I started just, I was down. My mood was down. I was getting depressed. My head was hurting. And I, I didn't know why. And my sister Tam said, I know what it is. I said, don't give me that health mumbo jumbo. Come on. She goes, just try it. Don't drink it. So I did for a good couple weeks, and it was completely different. One time I went in to a drive-thru, getting a quick Diet Coke. I drank one sip, and instantly the headache came on. You might say, well, that's not research. All I'm telling you is it was true for me. In a way, this is sort of the reason why we get hard hearts. I want to use this illustration because it looks so good, we don't care about anything else. So here's the second lesson. The reason we get hearts that are cold, that are sludged up, that are calloused, that are hard is because we are so easily deceived by lies that are no good for us. We become enamored by what I would say this marketed world that basically pumps out marketed lies about what it means to be a cool person or a great person or what real fun is or what pleasure is, even though it goes diametrically against what God said you should do. We are easily deceived, and it's killing us. And let me show you in Hosea 4 what's happening. Hosea 4 is a, um, it's a book. Hosea is a book about this lady named Gomer that married a prophet named Hosea. Very simple book. It was a representation of God's people. It's kind of a metaphor. Hosea was told to marry Gomer. Hosea the prophet was told to marry Gomer. Gomer happened to be a prostitute. So the man married a prostitute. She kept sleeping with other men. She's unfaithful. And God wanted to use this as an illustration to you and me. It says, you know what? You guys are just like Gomer. You leave your love for all of these Things that are killing you. Let me show you what I mean. Hosea 4. 1 through 3 is the metaphor of Hosea and Gomer. Verse 4, chapter 4 picks up. Chapter 4 picks up and kind of shows very specifically what the problem is. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord is a controversy. It means he's got something he wants to deal with. With the inhabitants of the land, his people. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. No knowledge of God in the land. There is, however, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, as a result of this, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet, 
let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother, because my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So what we have is the metaphor of unfaithfulness is because the people themselves have, according to verse 1, a heart that's unfaithful. That means they are not obedient or they are not faithful to God and His will. There's no real steadfast love. That means they're not driving hard after God. They're driving hard after other things. And then it says there's no knowledge of God in the land. So in a way, you could sum up this unfaithfulness, no love is a cold heart. They have cold hearts. These people have desperately cold hearts. So cold, look at the result. The way you can basically characterize them, they're liars. They're profane. They swear all the time. Like, it's no big deal. They'll just swear and it doesn't break them because we're supposed to be beautiful, dignified people, but our language makes us soiled, but it doesn't bother them because our hearts are cold. It's not sensitive. Murder means a... Hatred leads them to action. What is the cause of murder? Hating somebody, being so mad at somebody, you want to get them out of the way. And murder is the way you do that. There's stealing, taking what's not yours, committing adultery, being with somebody that's not yours. And break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. So because of this, chaos ensues, or says the land languishes. That means what's interesting, verse 3, where it says the land languishes. In the way the land's language, it says even the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are taken away, or they are destroyed. And the idea is because you have this cold heart and you're causing sin, you're kind of reversing creation. When God came in, he took chaos and brought order. Now your sin is making order into chaos. That's what sin does. It makes everything complex. It's funny when people come in and they've got problems from sin, they want to know where's the, there's no book on sin. Sin is disorder. Sin is what I would say, it's illogical. Why do people do it? I don't know. It's the same reason people drink Diet Coke. And if you're a Diet Coke drinker, I'm sorry. It's, it, it might offend you even more than this passage. What is the cause? Verse 6. Verse 6 is the diagnosis. And it shows us the root cause. And listen closely. My people are destroyed. They are, they are becoming this cold-hearted, beast, my people are destroyed because they don't have any knowledge. Because they've rejected knowledge. How have they rejected knowledge? Well, they've forgotten the law of God. They've forgotten. That is the most important word. They have forgotten the law of God. So, in other words, God has given them revelation. He's revealed to them how to live. What's good, what's right, what's holy, what's true, and they don't care. This word forgotten, the root idea of it is ignored it. He even says they rejected it. 
Romans 1 says we suppress truth. We just don't care. We don't care. And so, chaos ensues. So I want to talk about forgetting. How do we forget? What causes us to forget? And this is the most important part of this message. Because what causes us to forget is what gives us a cold heart. And the first thing is, uh, I think we forget based on this simple principle. You will lose it if you don't use it. Go to Deuteronomy 8, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. Deuteronomy 8, and this is specifically with regards to God and his word, Deuteronomy 8 may be one of the most influential passages of the Old Testament that influenced like David, the prophets, and even Jesus himself. This is, this is a really important passage. But listen to how it's written. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Follow the, follow the logic. The whole commandment, Deuteronomy means Moses is giving the law a second time. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. They've been wandering for 40 years. He's going to tell them what they need to know so they will prosper in the promised land. So verse 1 in Deuteronomy 8, he said, The whole commandment that I command to you today is you shall be careful to do. You need to do this commandment. Why? So that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know it was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The, the key is, I want you to keep his commandments. And I want you to, I want you to reason, here's the reason why. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell those 40 years. So they were in a wilderness for 40 years, and nothing fell apart. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Listen how many times he said, do the commandments. Do it. Walk in his ways. Fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil olive trees and honey, a land which you'll eat bread without scarcity in which you'll lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So he says, obey the word. Well, why should I? Because I'm giving you everything. It's, he never tells us to obey just to obey like we're slaves. He tells us to obey because he wants us to thrive. Verse 10, and you shall eat and be full. Here's where it gets bad. And I'm telling you, if you want a synopsis of our culture, here it is. And you shall eat and be full. Shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you and take care lest you forget. The Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you, lest 
when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who fed you in a wilderness. Beware, look at verse 17, here's the kicker. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. And if you forget that the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today, that you shall surely perish. That's what's happening to people in Hosea. They forgot. They forgot, and so they perish. And they perish, and as a result, everything else falls apart. Organization goes to chaos because they don't listen to God's word. We, we don't like this idea of obey the commandments. We often say, why should I? Why should I? And the reason we should the reason we should is because he's given us everything. His heart's trustworthy. He's true. I love It's Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. That means I die to myself. Nevertheless, I live, meaning I'm still alive. But Christ lives it. It's Christ who's living in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That means I obey him. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Why should I? Why should I live by faith? Because he loved me. And he gave himself for me. So if he loves me, don't you think when he tells me something that I should do, he's telling me for my good? Commands have two provisions. They provide for you and they protect you from yourself. That's why we need to do them. But here's the second problem we have, and I want you to go to Jeremiah, chapter 6. Jeremiah is about three books before Hosea. Jeremiah, chapter 6, in verse 10. And this is a verse I really believe you should have underlined, memorized. And this is, this is the second reason we forget. First reason is because we, we're fat, we're happy, and we start thinking we've done it. This is the second reason, and this is the Diet Coke reason. Verse 10. To whom, uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? In other words, what he's saying is who, who these days is really ready to listen to wisdom? Not many people listen anymore. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So the second reason people forget the word is because it's an issue of delight and pleasure. It's an issue of delight and pleasure. So you can say it like this. We forget because if we don't use it, we'll lose it. But also, sin is more enticing than God's word. It's, it's unbelievable. 
uh, John Piper put it like this. He said, you know what the essence of Christianity in is? It's a battle. It's a battle between the promises of sin versus the promises of God's word. Those two are presented before us. And if you want to be a true Christian, you have to truly follow the promises of God's word. The problem is the promises of sin look so good in the immediate. They look good now. It's sort of like this question. Next slide. What really is better for you? But that Coke poured over ice in the sparkle and the fizzle, that looks so good now. Water? It's just water. Have you ever read about what water does for you? Six reasons for drinking water. It's pretty, pretty impressive, actually. Pretty cool. Number one, drinking water helps maintain the balance of your body fluid. Your body is composed of 60% water. And so when you drink water, it helps your digestion, absorption, circulation, creation of saliva, transportation of nutrients, maintenance of body temperature. Hmm. Water can help control your calories. Did you know that? For years, dieters have been drinking lots of water as a weight loss strategy. Water doesn't have any magical effect. However, it's more filling. Foods that have a higher water content look larger, so you eat less. You want really to lose weight? Drink water. More of it. Water helps energize your muscles. Cells that don't maintain their balance of fluid and electrolytes, they shrivel, which results in muscle fatigue. When muscle cells don't have adequate fluids, they don't work as well. That's why coaches now will say, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. When I had a coach, he said, I'm, you guys don't run hard enough. You're not going to get able to drink this afternoon. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Did anybody have a coach like that in the 80s? You did, Brad? Man, they said, you guys, Johnny, remember, you didn't sprint hard enough. You're not going to get any water this afternoon. And then when you come out afterwards, you can barely walk. Number four, water helps your keep skin looking good. Looking good. Drink water. Dehydration makes your skin look dry and wrinkled. But once you're adequately hydrated, the kidneys take over and excrete excess fluids. Water helps your kidneys. And then the sixth one is water helps maintain normal bowel function. I think that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It's a very... It's almost, it's almost as if water was made for us. It's almost by, like somebody's a designer and made a, a liquid that works for us as we are. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The Word of God is made for us. It's made for us. Just like water, it's perfectly designed to give us life. I said the problem with Diet Coke, the best way to put it is the diet, problem with Diet Coke, it's the, what I call, you're going you're gonna to understand this in a second, but right away you're not. It's called the linen suit effect. And write this down, called the linen suit theory. It might be the most important theory you ever learned. 
like linen suit. I used to work at Jay Riggins. Stylish clothes for stylish men. I used to work over where um, the old, oh, what is that mall on Plainfield? Yeah, North Kent Mall. I used to work where the tumbleweeds would go through there. Nobody would come in, so I'd always be looking at the Jay Riggins clothes, Jay Riggins clothes. And all of a sudden, some year, somebody decided that linen suits are back in style. Linen suits are those white suits, in the, like the 1920s they used to wear. They're like, man, we're going to bring those back in style. Truthfully, they, they get wrinkled, and when you're, you're heavy a little bit, they make you look like you're a balloon. One day, this guy came in. No lie, he's looking for a suit with his wife. And the linen suits are in the front rack, and they were in the front display. And his wife said, those look sharp. So this guy, he was probably 5'8", 280, put on a linen suit, came out of the dressing room, looked at the three-way mirror like that, and his wife said, man, that looks sharp. He looked at me, and he said, what do you think? Can I be honest? Yeah, yeah, you look like a cloud, a floating cloud. Looks really bad on you. And the wife's like, what do you mean? I said, that looks bad on him. Somebody in there was like, hey, Chris, you're trying to sell stuff. If I sell that suit to him, they, no. So we got him a black blazer. He looked trim. He looked sharp. It didn't work. But the linen suits were there, and North Kent Mall gets awfully lonely, and you to look at it. And I started trying the linen suit on him. When nobody came in, I, I'm going to try this on, walk around. I, I like the material. I started wanting to buy a highly expensive linen suit. The first time I saw the linen suit, I thought it was ridiculous. After about a week, I thought it's the sharpest thing I ever saw. Why? Because it was always before me. It was always before me. The thing you see the most, you start wanting. The problem with the Word of God is we keep watching pleasure, 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 and it, the Word of God grows distant, and we forget about it, and we don't want it anymore. It's the linen suit theory. You have to work at it, and you have to keep it in front of you. I did not like Diet Coke the first time I tasted it. It really is not good. But I had it an awful lot to where I grew accustomed to. I think we've grown accustomed to sin, to pleasure, to things that take away our hunger for the Word of God. What's fascinating, if you look again in, in, uh, back in Hosea 4, Hosea 4, verse 3, it talks about how the the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. And this is an idea. This, the idea, as I said before, is when God came, the land was dark, it was void, and then his light shone. And when his light shone, it all of a sudden said, everything started to come into order. So darkness had no light, but when light came, you could start seeing and you could start putting things in order. What this is saying is when you abandon the light, which is the Word of God, 
When you abandon the light, it starts getting darker and chaos ensues. Just like water, the Word of God's made for you. And then what's really interesting, if you keep reading the Genesis account, it says God planted seeds that grew up into trees of all kinds of different fruits. So the light came, took chaos into order, and then he started planting seeds, and those seeds brought into fruit. The Word of God is also not just light, but it's like a seed. Those promises are seeds. Promises, when I believe them and live in them and walk in them, they start producing fruit trees in my life. So the Word of God, it's as if, it's as if it's designed for us. Why is there such a lack of hunger? I think the linen suit thing. So how then do we not allow that theory to impact us? We have to start learning this again. Getting back to it. Is there anybody you've ever really met that delights in the Bible? Truly, there's only a few. And by delight in the Bible, you can tell they, they don't just read it to read it. You know, they, they like it. They really like it. And it affects their life. And they're chewing on it all day. And they kind of talk to you about it. You know, I would say the pastors I work with really like it. It's a privilege to be with them. I'll tell you, it's really, it's really cool to work with those guys. If you guys know Paul Slaughter, go see Paul Slaughter. He'll buy you a Bible. He'll give you a Bible. But there's one guy recently that every time I talk to him, all he wants to talk about is the Bible. This guy's name's Murray Potts. This guy is uh, hes going through some heavy suffering. He's finding meaning like never before in God's Word. So, how do we get these cold hearts to thaw out? Hosea has the answer. Go to the very last verse in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Look what it says. It's really pretty neat. So you have the story of Hosea and Gomer. Eventually, Gomer comes back. God is saying, it's just like Israel. I'm going to bring them back and they're going to be blessed and they're going to prosper again. He sums up the whole book of Hosea in verse 9. Listen to it. It's beautiful. Listen to what he says. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let, them, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright will walk in them. So it's knowing God's word, his ways, and doing it. And when you do these things, your heart will start thawing out. Listen to this verse. This verse is beautiful. I love this verse. Verse Psalm 119.32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You will, the, some, the, the, basically the rendering means when you, you will enlarge my heart, as I run in your commandments, as I run in your commandments, as I do what your commandments say, my heart will start growing. It will start getting warm. NIV says, in fact, you'll set my heart free. So the implication is, before I run in the word, I'm in bondage. 
before I'm in really obeying his will, I'm really in darkness. But once I start running in his word, doing what it says, you will enlarge my heart. There's two problems with this, is we live in a skeptical age. We live in this age where it says, show me that your word's trustworthy, and then I might do it. It doesn't work like that. Do it, and it will prove itself trustworthy. Skeptics are dangerous because they're never satisfied. You can never give, never give them enough information to convince them. But Scripture works in this way. You do it, and it proves itself true. And then the second thing is, I remember reading the story about, I get, he's, a, he's a guy that really, when I was a young Christian, I read a lot of his books. His name's Francis Schaeffer, and there was a point in time right before he went to seminary, he was in ministry for a while, but he realized he in himself had to be convinced that this is truth. So he holed himself up in a barn, and he, I think he's in there for a couple weeks, and he said, I am going to read this from cover to cover, and when I get done with this, I have to decide whether this is the truth or it's not. If it's the truth, I'm going to set my life by it. If it's not, I'm done with ministry. And he left that barn saying, this is it. This is the truth. And I'm telling you, that guy in the 70s, 60s, 70s, early 80s had quite an impact on our culture, Christian speaking. And I think we need to do that some of you doubt it. Some of you really, underneath your heart, there's skepticism galore. Do I really believe this thing? Do you really believe this was sent to you from the Holy Spirit? You have to wrestle with that question. I'm going to end with just two stories, and then Jared's going to come up. And lead us in a meditative song. Here's the two stories. Story number one. A story is told of a devout father whose son was studying for the ministry. The son decided to go to Europe for an advanced degree. And the father worried that his simple faith would be spoiled by sophisticated, unbelieving professors. Don't let them take Jonah away from you, he admonished his son. He figured swallowing the big fish story might be the first part of the Bible to go, and he didn't want his son to lose it. Two years later, when his son returned, the father asked, do you still have Jonah in your Bible? The son laughed, Jonah, the story, Dad, isn't even in your Bible. The father replied, it certainly is. What do you mean? Again, the son laughed, and he insisted, Dad, it's not in your Bible. Go ahead, show it to me. Show me, Jonah, it's in your Bible. The older man fumbled through his Bible, looking for the book of Jonah, but he couldn't find it. At last, he checked the table of contents for the proper page. When he turned there, he discovered the three pages comprising Jonah had been carefully cut out of his Bible. The son said, I did that before I went away. What's the difference? Whether I lose the book of Jonah through studying under non-believers, or you lose it through neglect. Story number two. Mortimer J. Adler in How to Read a Book has observed that the one time people read for all they are worth, or all that it is worth, 
is when they are in love and are reading a love letter. They read every word three ways. They read between the lines and in the margins. They read the whole in terms of the parts, and each part in terms of the whole. They grow sensitive to context and ambiguity, to insinuation and implication. They perceive the color of the words, the order of phrases, and the weight of sentences. They may even take the punctuation into account. Then, if never before or after, they read carefully and in depth. So should believers read the love letter that the eternal lover of our souls has given to us so that we may better know him and his purposes. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to, uh, I would say, enlarge our hearts, thaw us out, help us have a new hunger, a new thirst for your word. Help us not to neglect it because the pleasures of this world are so enticing. They are to me, God. They really are. I need to be better. I think all of us in here do. Help us, God, to allow your word to be planted in our hearts like a seed that bears fruit in its due season, as it says in Psalm 1. Thank you, Father, for this truth. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.